Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. I mentioned earlier John Neihart's, uh, one of the poems in his a Cycle of the West, a poem called The Song of Jed Smith. Jed Smith was this uh, explorer who, with a group of rowdies, tried to make their way to California. And uh, in the course of the uh, journey, they come upon a little, uh, what they hope will be a uh, important river for them to follow. And it starts out not very, not very prominent, and ends up c- considerably less prominent than that. And anyway, when they find it, Jed Smith uh, names the river the Adams River for the president. Well, Jim, Jed Smith names it the Adams River for the president, but I suspect that the poet named it the Adams River for our first, uh, our, our first uh, ancestor. Anyway, uh, the poem, there's a little passage that goes like this. When they get to a certain place, when they suddenly see what's before them, which is where Dante is here, we didn't make a sound, just looked across that country hellward bound, and filled our eyes with nothing, flabbergasted. You made up stories while the canyon lasted, but yonder was the story God had made. It looked like even Harry hadn't prayed quite loud enough. Jed didn't seem to care, spoke quietly of California there and pointed to the white sun blazing down beyond that waste. There'd be an Indian town along the river we were coming to, and there we'd rest. That's limbo in this poem. I don't know what it was in his poem. He spoke spoke as if he knew, and made hope certain as geography. Why, come to think of it, you could see the cornfields waving by the riverside. Well, two more horses and a mule had died with others on the ragged edge of dying before the Adams finally quit trying to justify the wearing of the name. Well, anyway, this, this point of looking out and seeing this expanse and realizing what it was going to cost is appropriate to Canto two. Because Dante begins quite the way it's supposed to begin, with an appeal to the muses. The epic genre required that one appeal to the muses and ask for their help and so on. We get all the standard things uh, moving, operating in the poem. And then Dante says uh, to Virgil, well, you know, Aeneas went into the underworld, but then Aeneas was the founder of Rome. And Paul, he calls him the chosen vessel, that's how Paul's referred to in the Acts of the Apostles, and Paul went into the third heaven. In, Paul, in Second Corinthians, Paul speaks in the third person about himself going to the third heaven. Paul went into the third heaven, but he was going to found the church. And Dante says, I'm not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. I'm not so sure I'm worthy. I'll give you John Chiardi's translation of the of the key lines here. 
As one who unwills what he wills will stay strong purposes with feeble second thoughts until he spells all his first zeal away, so I hung back and balked on that dim coast till thinking had worn out my enterprise, so stout at starting and so early lost. Something's not quite there yet. Something is missing. He has invoked the muses. He has his guide. Everything seems to be in order, but he's having these second thoughts, and he thinks that they are thoughts that have something to do with humility. Virgil tells him they have to do with cowardice. But Virgil knows how to solve the problem, and Virgil tells him how he got his commission to be there. And he got it from Beatrice, and Beatrice got it from St. Lucia, St. Lucia got it from the Virgin Mary. And he tells the story of how this happened. Virgin Mary told Lucia, Lucia went and got Beatrice and said to Beatrice, there's the one you love, lost. Go get Virgil and tell him to go save him. And uh, in the course of explaining how this happened, Lucia says to Beatrice, this is line 103 and following, you, Beatrice, true praise of God, why have you not helped him who loves you so that for your sake he's left the vulgar crowd? It seems to me there's an echo here of that kind of um, that kind of awakening that comes from falling in love. Uh, parents are always finding out to their chagrin that when their adolescent children fall in love, suddenly they seem to have discovered a source of authority in them uh, so reliable that they can thumb their nose at just about anything else. Uh, it it uh, causes enormous grief uh, in you know, families and society in a certain way. But the deeper point is that in that falling in love we discover, we, we find that we, are, we have a kind, of, a kind of inner gyroscope, a kind of inner authorization that the love itself gives us. And I think there is something that justifies us reading these lines generically that that falling in love is what gets us out of the vulgar crowd. Now that it often, you know, leads us into hackneyed renditions of itself, in which case we don't get very far from the vulgar crowd. But I think it does awaken something in us. But just below those lines, she says she goes on to say, "Do you not hear the anguish in his cry?" Do you not see the death he wars against upon that river, ruthless as the sea? Now, I would like to take that line, the river ruthless as the sea, and uh, focus on it uh, more than it appears to justify. The Exodus story begins with the crossing of the Red Sea. 
and then there is the journey in the wilderness, the going to the mountain, the crossing of the Jordan, and then into the exigencies of settling in the Promised Land. The, the Christian antitype to the story sees both the Red Sea and the River Jordan as parallels to Christian baptism. So depending on how people see them both as having some of that echo. If we realize that the, that both, that the story is a, tra is a conversion story uh, in its deepest implications, then there is this initial crossing, which is the Red Sea crossing, which seems to be the uh, the most uh, the most uh, traumatic, the most wrenching one. You have to remember now, Dante's in his late forties. In many respects, he's already crossed the Red Sea, and what he is finding out is that this, what appears to be a a more uh, a, a, not without its own terror, terrors, but a, a more uh, placid crossing is as ruthless as the sea. And I think it's entirely possible. I think it's given what we're, what the story is doing. The story is saying the conversion process is a hell of a lot more demanding than we thought. It is not a matter, we might put it in our terms, it is not a matter of choosing this, that, or the other religious mythology, it, though that might be a part of it. It is not a matter of, uh, of, of something that can take place in the mind, but it, is, it involves the, the uh, dismantling of the personality and the reconstruction of patterns of consciousness. And so here's Dante on what one might have expected to be a later stage of the conversion process, a less demanding stage, and he is finding out that the river, the Jordan, is as ruthless as the sea. And it's at that river that he has, that he has, uh, that his journey has been arrested. So Virgil completes his description of the three women. Something was missing when it was just Virgil, and now we have, by implication, involved in this journey, the Virgin Mary, St. Lucia, and Beatrice. Dante uses an, another analogy, as little flowers which the chill of night has bent and huddled when the white sun strikes, grow straight and open fully on their stems, so did I too with my exhausted force, and so on. And he comes alive again. And he says to Virgil, You with your words have so disposed my heart to longing for this journey, I return to what I was at first prepared to do. Now he longs for the journey. What was missing before... Virgil brought in the Virgin Mary, Lucia, and especially Beatrice, was the longing for the journey. Virgil has said it is 
inescapable. And you would think, well, that ought to be, that ought to be uh, enough. It's absolutely inescapable, but it's not enough. It has to be longed for. And when he brings in <coughs> Beatrice, the longing is there. Without the longing, one gives up too soon, as Dante has already shown. And Dante says to Virgil, Go now, a single will fills both of us. He gives his will over to Virgil. At the end of the purgatorio, Virgil will give it back to him. Humming, polished, functioning will. And he'll say to him, Now, whatever it tells you to do, you can do. You don't even have to have a second thought. But for now, hand it over. That's what the monk does. That's what the abbot does. That's, that's what the uh, Zen master does. So there's a passage in the Yeats poem that I will conclude with. Um, now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Well, the uh, French novelist, Jean Sullivan, uh, said, the next fool who comes along can father children and do paperwork. And uh, you may wonder, having I've done a little of both of those, and uh, you may wonder why, that, why I derive some kind of uh, sustenance from that wisecrack this week. But I was thinking about how it is that uh, from one end to this, of this state to another, there is good money to be made holding workshops on some version of the gospel that I'm okay, you're okay. And here I am trying to get people to think about sin and eternal damnation uh, and a uh, quaint little place on the on the fringes of hell called Limbo, where, where little babies go if they die before they're baptized. <laughs> oh, well, nobody said it was going to be easy. <laughs> but we, have, we face the same situation Dante faced, and that is uh, we are facing an interpretive crisis. <clears throat> These things uh, seem less and less relevant to us. And so then the question is, do we abandon them and get on to some more uh, comfortable or convenient or familiar uh, imagery, uh, or do we return to them and reinterpret them? Well, Dante returned to them and reinterpreted them, and uh, those who've put some thought into this generally come to the conclusion that it is the reinterpretive process that keeps us coherent as a people because we can use the same imagery and simply go deeper into its significance as we go along. So we'll try to do that. The old uh, saw about uh, if you no longer believe, enlarge the temple uh, is appropriate here. So the, we have images that we'll have to massage into some larger 
significance before we can we can go along with what Dante is doing. And Dante, I think, leaves us plenty of hints as to how to do that. Uh, Carl Menninger, as you know, wrote a book a number of years ago entitled what, Whatever Became of Sin or something like that, in which he says uh, the word sin is an ominous uh, word, but if we try to live without it for any stretch of time at all, our situation becomes ominous. And so we find out sooner or later we've got to resuscitate that word in order to get our bearings on where we are. So what I thought I'd try to do this morning, some of this will be a repetition for some of you, but I thought I'd try to uh, uh, explore a little bit the idea of sin. How's that for a nice sunny Saturday morning? And, uh, and then talk a little bit about hell and then go in and see what Dante says about uh, hell in the, first, uh, in the first few sins he encounters. I, th I think it was when we were doing Milton, or maybe it was when we were doing the uh, uh, book of Genesis, I don't recall, but anyway, I, in self-defense, I came up with a, a metaphor for tr to try to explore this thing called original sin. Original sin is, n is uh, not a very popular uh, notion anymore, although it, the, its existence is, uh, is pretty much beyond doubt if you look around with any care. Uh, but it's a hard notion to get to. Augustine pretty much created the notion by saying that uh, the naughtiness that Adam and Eve uh, uh, performed, uh, we've inherited somehow, and that we, uh, we suffer under that same load of guilt. And now here we are. Uh, how do we get back? And, the, um, and what we get with the ego is a decidedly selfward-tending existence as opposed to a Godward-tending existence. And uh, so instead of a life of being and becoming, we slide into a life of getting and keeping uh, and become nervous about survival and, uh, and lose something essential to us. Well, whatever the story is that puts us in touch with this uh, fundamentally skewed uh, kind of consciousness that we ordinarily walk around with, there is some original distortion of our sensibilities uh, that has to be repaired. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this, Be sure that there is something inside you which, unless it is altered, will put it out of God's power to prevent your being eternally miserable. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In, e in each of us there is something growing up which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Well, I was thinking to go ahead on this uh, sort of evolutionary or larger scale uh, set of analogies. I was thinking after this original quirk where we get ego consciousness instead of some larger kind, we take a quick glance around and uh, we notice some version or, or another of the second law of thermodynamics. That is to say, the universe seems to be running down. The second law of thermodynamics is, uh, is, is the entropic law. That is to say, everything, uh, if you want to you think original sin is a gloomy concept, you should consult the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, it says that 
everything uh, left to its own uh, resources, everything becomes uh, further apart from everything else and colder. Now, the metaphysicians didn't come up with that. The physicists did. That's what hell is. Hell is a, a, a world under the sway of the, law, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything becomes further apart and colder and finally dead. The wages of sin is death, says St. Paul. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Well, the, 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 all of us afflicted with this original skewing of our, of our sensibilities, we look out and we see some evidence, some proof that, in fact, that is the world we live in, the world ruled by the second law of thermodynamics. The only hope, the physicists tell us, because if the second law of thermodynamics rules, then, the, then as Eliot said in, uh, in his poem, uh, the, the world will finally end in a, not with a bang but a whimper. The only hope is that somewhere in the cosmos there is enough matter exerting enough gravitational force to prevent the the uh, dispersion of it all into ultimate separation and final coldness. Is there enough matter? And so we look around and we get anxious about this question. Is there enough matter? As of today, I, I, I think, uh, the visitors have not found it. They are becoming increasingly alarmed at the possibility that there may not be enough, and so it's just going to go on out like that. Well, f with no proof to go on that there's enough matter, we begin to behave, we begin to try to make the best of a bad situation. And uh, one of the ways of doing that is in a world that is scarce of matter, one tries to uh, get as much of it as one can to make a kind of, uh, to make a kind of um, temporary meaning out of a world that's just slowly getting colder and further apart. And the, and the astronomical uh, version of that is the black hole. The black hole is a star that has consumed its inner resources and imploded upon itself, and in imploding upon itself, has drawn every all the matter in its environment into its own clutches to the point that it draws light itself into itself so that not even light can escape. So the old hymn about let your light shine, the opposite of that is a black hole that takes that Anxiety, if I, you, you understand how I'm using this in a wildly metaphoric sense, a, a scientist would just nail me the wall for this. But that, that uh, anxiety about there not being enough matter produces black holes, which is to say, living on our own resources until they finally exhaust and then imploding and drawing everything into the implosion until not even light comes out. 
William Blake, in his poem Milton, wrote this, I will arise and go forth for the morning of the grave. I will go down to the sepulchre to see if morning breaks. I will go down to self-annihilation and eternal death, lest the last judgment come and find me unannihilate, and I be seized and given into the hands of my own selfhood. The Black Hole C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce wrote, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All those that are in hell choose to be there. So the question symbolically is, is there enough matter? And uh, lacking any proof, we... Uh, given some already flawed perceptions, uh, we tend towards the black hole solution to the problem. The moralist would ask the question, what's the matter? The, the simple-minded the simple -minded first question is, is there enough matter? The moralist who wakes up ha is, is half awake, one eye open, says, what's the matter? The mystic and the poet says, does life matter? Uh, possibly using matter here almost as a verb. Uh, does something matter enough to reverse that dissipated situation despite the lack of proof? You know, Yeats said Michelangelo left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof. Well, so I wanted to quote this poem, which may not be clear to you exactly why, even after I finish quoting. This is Wallace Stevens' poem. Uh, sin, the, the Greek word for sin, hamartia, means to miss the point. So... A, a life of sin is a life that is that is consistently missing the point. And what is the point, after all? Well, Wallace Stevens writes a poem. He says the essential. He speaks of the essential poem at the center of things. One poem proves another and the whole. For the clairvoyant men that need no proof, the lover, the believer, and the poet. That's it. The lover writes, the believer hears, the poet mumbles, and the painter sees. Each one, his faded eccentricity, as a part, but part, but tenacious particle of the skeleton of the ether. There's the matter. A part, but part, but tenacious particle of the skeleton of the ether. Now, that's as close as somebody as cerebral as Wallace Stevens is going to come to the Pauline notion of the body of Christ. The real stuff. The um, letter to the Hebrews defines faith. If, you, if I may slightly alter the translation, I don't think that the significance is altered at all. Defines faith as the matter 
of things hoped for and the proof of things unseen. Well, in sin, uh, sin is to miss the point, but there's, it's more, it's more uh, dangerous than that because uh, it has a kind of, uh, it has a kind of addiction or hypnotic effect on us. And in Dante, the Dante is, uh, uh, we're to his in his debt for many reasons, but he has given us a picture of sin, which is that it finally results in fixation. Fixation not only in the psychological sense, but fixation in the, in the, in the literal sense of being, of being paralyzed, of being frozen. The bottom of hell is ice. The opposite of sin is creativity. The opposite of sin is vitality. Sin, has, uh, sin can masquerade sometimes as vital, uh, but it's, it is the opposite of sin that is vitality. But the problem is we don't, there's not enough, it, it's not self-correcting. Uh, there are these seven deadly sins, they call, they're referred to as the deadly sins. We'll, we'll, it, Dante treats them in the Inferno, but he treats them more, uh, more systematically in the pur Purgatorio, so we'll look at them then. But they're called deadly sins because their failure to satisfy does not incline us to choose an alternative to them. And that, in that sense, they're deadly. They lead into deadly spirals. It's like what T.S. Eliot said about his, history. She gives when our attention is distracted, and what she gives gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving. Um, so they're called deadly sins because you never get enough of what you really don't want. And it just goes on and on and on until the fixation finally takes over. So John Charty, who translated the, the Divine Comedy, said after reading Dante's uh, version of it, he, he's led to conclude that hell is not where the damned are. Hell is what they are. Fixed in their own funny business. Well, I wanted to start uh, in, on Canto 3 with the first uh, few lines. First of all, by saying the first three tercets, or the first nine lines of Canto 3, are typically, and they are in our um, uh, version here, the version most of us have, they're typically set off typographically uh, in, our, in this version, the Mendelbaum version, it's, it's uh, uh, all capital uh, letters. Sometimes it's italic, sometimes it's set off in a little box so as to... In other words, we're told by the way in which the book is made that this is an inscription. This also happens to be one of the most famous passages in the whole Divine Comedy, so that people have come to relate to it. Before we even read the first word, we somehow realize that this is not some person talking. But Dante didn't write it that way. Uh, 
in Dante's time, the typographical uh, distinctions were not there, and so it was simply written. It was simply words on a page. So we're not supposed to know until we get further down here that this is the inscription on the on the gate of hell. And I think that helps us to to uh, to take the hint that Dante gives us about how to approach this these words. So I'll read them and then we'll kind of circle back a few times on them. Through me the way into the etern- excuse me through me the way into the suffering city through me the way to the eternal pain through me the way that runs among the lost justice urged on my high artificer my maker was divine authority the highest wisdom and the primal love that's a reference to the trinity authority wisdom and love before me nothing but eternal things were made and i endure eternally abandon every hope who enter here And Dante says, these words, their aspect was obscure, I read inscribed above a gateway. And I said, Master, their meaning is difficult for me. Now Dante is giving us a hint. Their meaning is difficult for me. Uh, he's, I told you last week that, like a computer, Dante is user-friendly. He's helping us interpret the poem. When he says their meaning is difficult for me, he is telling his readers not to jump to conclusions about the first impression they get from reading these words. And so he cycles us back around to start again. And if you go back... You see, it says, by the way, Robert Frost said, uh, uh, talking about poetry, he said, always leave something to be learned later. That is to say, on second, third, fourth, and fifth readings, uh, each one of them should uncover a little bit more of of the stuff that's been planted there. So he says, leave something to be discovered later. And then when you get a, a really great work of art, like Dante's poem here, you get things that may not be available for that discovery until uh, you know a long time later. It occurred to me reading this passage here that uh, there are certain implications of this, these lines that we, we could simply not available to us until we had lived through what is now referred to as the me generation. Because if then you go back and you begin to read these first lines in the Italian, per me si va, per me si va, per me si va. So I talked about the selfward-tending existence as opposed to the Godward-tending existence. Notice this, through me, through me, through me. Now forget that this is an inscription on a gate. Through me. Through me, through me. See the reference there? Now Dante is new is highly nuanced when it comes to this. Dante is a, is entirely too too uh, creative and and uh, feisty and energetic 
uh, to submit to some unsubtle sense of, uh, of, of, this, of the mystery of, of selfhood. Uh, but through me, now what if we did a little typographical thing and put me in quotation marks? Through me, the way into the suffering city. Through me, the isolate, the self-reference, through me, the way to the eternal pain, through me, the way that runs among the lost. Well, Dante says, the uh, second to the last line says, I endure forever. That is the horror of this. Hell's horror is that the attempt to perpetuate the unregenerate ego finally succeeds. That's hell. The attempt to perpetuate the unregenerate ego succeeds beyond our wildest dream. And we have enduring we the ego endures what it what it ends up with all, all this striving for survival ends up with duration the untransformed duration and I think that's the terror of the situation perme 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 duro Perme, 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 duro. That's hell. It finally succeeds. And then, further hint here, Dante says to Virgil, their meaning, senso, their, the sense, is duro for me. The word duro means not only to endure, but it also means difficult, hard. It's a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Now this is a, this has meaning on all those levels. It's a hard saying because it's written on stone. It's a hard saying because it's difficult to comprehend. Its meaning is hard. But I think Dante is getting us to come back around and look at hell itself. Hell is perme, 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 duro. And then he says, it is duro. It is difficult for me. Now that is an echo of two things in the scriptures. It's an echo of something in the Bread of Life discourse in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Bread of Life discourse going along quite well. Uh, reasonably well. Towards the very end of that discourse, Jesus is speaking. He's, this is the whole thing. I am the bread of life and all of that. And it seems to be okay. And then he says to his disciples, he says to whoever's in, within earshot, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats me will draw life from me. And the disciples say, 
This is a hard saying. Just what Dante says here. This is a hard saying. How could anyone accept it? Now, in echoing that biblical reference, see, what's the problem with the disciples? The problem with the disciples is that they took it literally. They took it literally. So when Dante gives us a little hint here, this is a hard saying for me. He is, I think, alerting his readers right at the beginning of hell that we are exploring the mystery of human existence and we're not exploring a place. We're using the metaphor of place and the metaphor of time to explore human existence. Not to be taken literally. There's no surprise to us. But what is interesting is that Dante would leave that hint in the text itself. The other reference to this, I think, is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and it's elsewhere in Paul too, which is that the letter kills and the letter is written on stone. It's the spirit that brings life and not the letter. Another hint about the interpretive process uh, that's required when you go through this poem. So that's what hell is. Through me, through me, through me, and then it survives. The unregenerate ego gets its wish and survives. We need space and time metaphors uh, to put us in touch with things that are not space and time realities. But we need those. Uh, I'd like to comment that W.S. Merwin, an American poet, made talking about a mountain. He said, at, at the distance at which, in theory, one could see it all, it would be out of sight. Uh, and so some concession has to be made to our inability to see it all. I want to give you a little story. This seems like an aside, but I, th I think you'll get the, the sense I got of this. I was thinking this week about this whole thing of hell and how do you... Uh, uh, Dante makes uh, well perhaps I should say this for uh, Dante here says justice urged on my high artificer that was a I'm not going to quibble with Dante very often but that was an inherited understanding in his time that somehow hell was just there was justice to it uh, I don't think that really stands up finally. A punishment which is unremedial is unloving. The reason there's hell is not because it's... The justification for hell is not justice. The justification for hell is freedom. Some people prefer to be there. If there's going to be freedom, one thing we'll notice in hell is that, uh, sure, there are some people who want out, uh, but given a choice between staying and reorienting their existence on something more substantial, they would stay. 
So everybody who's in hell wants to be there. Chooses it over any alternative. They don't want to be there, but they would choose it over its alternative. John Charity says they, they, they may hate the drug, but they love the fix. But anyway, it's a hard one to, to deal with because it seems like any God who would tolerate such a place has got to be a mean God, an unloving God. Uh, and so on. And I thought about that this, this week, and I wanted to share this little story with you. This is not is apropos of nothing, really, but I just wanted to share it with you. I was reading uh, Narnia to my children, and uh, in Narnia, there's uh, the, the fantasy novels of C.S. Lewis. In Narnia, the Christ figure is Aslan the lion. And uh, I'm reading this in Narnia, the Narnia story, and in this sto particular story, uh, a little girl named Jill has just uh, found herself in in Narnia, the kingdom of Narnia. She doesn't know anything about it. And she sees this huge lion there, and there's a stream. She's dying of thirst, and there's a stream running by. And she just wants a drink of water so badly she can hardly stand it. But there's the lion at the river, at the stream. And uh, here's how the story went. I want to tell you what happened when I read it. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Or could I? Would you mind going away? while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty by now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. <laughs> I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Well, as I'm reading this, Anya, who's four, slipped off the sofa kind of onto the floor and started monkeying around with some little toy on the floor. And she looked up at me and she said, Daddy, that is a mean lion. <laughs> <laughs> And the whole problem, you know, it faced me right there. I said, well, Anya, Aslan's not really a mean lion. Oh, yes, Daddy, that is a mean lion. That lion, that lion eats little girls and boys and kings and all kinds of things. She said, well, you see, what to say? So anyway, uh, if we could, as W.S. Merwin says, if we at the distance at which one could see it all, it would be out of sight. Um, one more thing before we go on, and that is the word eternal. I've already really referred to this. But we usually think of these ideas of something being eternal, being forever, or being never. Uh, first of all, we don't believe them anymore, so we throw them around. If we believed them, we, this would be a much more exciting and terrifying life. 
but we don't believe them. Uh, we're going to have to believe them if we really want to get hit by this poem. If you want to have this poem turn you inside out, you're going to have to believe them. Now, we have to. We will immediately concede that they that they are temporal metaphors. Uh, we think of eternal being a long, 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 long time. That's a temporal metaphor. Eternal, of course, is not a temporal notion at all. Uh, you could even... There, it, it is, Dante has to tell a story, and a story is always told in time, so he's stuck with that, but you could a case could be made for the fact that hell endures day in and day out for as long as you can imagine. And heaven happens in a timeless instant. But in any case, we use these temporal metaphors. Here, the metaphors of forever and never and all of that. We use them to express utter futility utter futility. You could do that until doomsday and it would do you no good. It would come to nothing. It would You would simply be dig yourself deeper into the hole. That is, I think, the essence of the idea of an eternal damnation that is utterly impotent utterly futile. Okay, right before we get into it, I thought I would offer, at least this is kind of a grab bag, you can take your choice, three uh, uh, slightly more palatable options on imagining hell as we go through. Um, First is hell, heaven and hell are the same place. Uh, we've talked about this before. They're the same place experienced by different uh, a different consciousness, a different person. Uh, one is the beatific vision, to use the mythological language. One is the full and unmediated presence of the divine, and the other is the full and unmediated presence of the divine. <laughs> and in one, that presence is uh, welcomed, not without some initial pain, I, I expect, but in the other, it is it is, as Blake said, too self-annihilating. And so we retreat in the face of it and choose self-perpetuation instead. So hell and heaven are the same place. But there is a deadline. The deadline is death. If, you, if we had to get ready to go and accept some of Dante's, what he's gonna, how he's going to use us here, there is a deadline, death. It is a deadline. Uh, we'll get some hints of that later in the text. A uh, Scottish Dominican, Noel Dur uh, Dermot O'Donohue, 
spoke of two selves in each of us, the everyday self and the deepest self. And he says, death is a force that binds man into his deepest self. Rend a rending of his everyday being that is an unveiling of his deepest being. Unveil the, the word apocalypse means unveiling. It is an apocalyptic revelation of the deepest being and an abandonment forever of the everyday self. And it's dramatic. There it has to be a deadline for things to be dramatic and exciting. I know that we tend to we like the idea of reincarnation and all that, and I'm, I'm a, I don't mean to come to, or even the idea of purgatory. You know, it's it's nice to kind of blur the deadline, and we can, maybe it's blurred, but um, unless there's a deadline, all the excitement goes out of it. You know, if you just if you just kind of go around again, all the excitement goes out. But the actual the idea of an actual deadline. So I'll read you another little uh, children's poem. Let's tell them where I get all my good material. This is David McCord wrote a poem called Cocoon. But we tend to think, you know, a lot of times that we try to soften death. Well, let me tell you this little. And it's true. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, but we say, uh, well, you see, there's the caterpillar, and then the caterpillar goes in, and becomes a little protein soup, and then after a while, it becomes a butterfly. And that seems okay, you know. Uh, but here's a here's a children's poet. I mean, a children's poem that's much more terrifying than that. The little caterpillar creeps. A while before in silk it sleeps. It sleeps a while before it flies, and flies a while before it dies, and that's the end of three good tries. <laughs> There's some point at which that's it. See? The other idea of hell that you might want to uh, take a look at is that uh, hell exists, but it's empty. But we can't be allowed to know that it's empty, or else it wouldn't exist in any significant way. Uh, Hannah Arendt, you know, said this thing about uh, the philosopher. Hannah Arendt said, uh, the "Truth cannot. You can't persuade somebody of the existence of truth because truth cannot be the subject of persuasion. But you can convince them of almost anything else." including the existence of heaven and hell. And if you convince them of the existence of heaven and hell, you can get them to behave as though they knew the truth. Now, there's, some, there's something to that, too, you see. Um, it's a little bit like Marianne Moore's definition of poetry. It's uh, imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Uh, there is a hell. There, isn't, there is hell. Uh, Pick up the morning paper. There is hell. And it's crowded there. When Dante says, the meaning is hard for me, the first thing that Virgil says is, here one must leave behind all hesitation. 
the, the word sospetto, I think we might see that as skepticism. Leave behind, and I think it's Dante telling us something about how to read his poem. Dante says, this is duro for me, this is difficult for me. And Dante, Virgil is telling Dante, and Dante is telling his reader, that's us, to leave behind your skepticism. The, the damned that go into hell have to leave behind their hope, but the reader of this poem has to leave behind his skepticism. And then Virgil goes on, and this is when it, Virgil goes on to say, he speaks of the miserable people who are housed in hell, those who have lost the good of the intellect. Now, as we said when we were talking about the Dante's uh, La Vita Nuova, Dante uses the word intellect, at least in places, in the way in which we use the word consciousness. Those who are in hell are those who have lost the real sense of consciousness. Why are we conscious? What is the purpose of consciousness? Dante understood the purpose of consciousness to be to come to know God and to live in the divine presence. That was for Dante, the purpose of consciousness. And the people in hell are in hell because they have lost that sense of consciousness. And so they have turned consciousness, they have used consciousness for something else. Without God-centeredness, the mind is just the mind. And then what we have instead of consciousness is the mind. That's hell. Instead of consciousness, we have the mind going on in all of its just elaborate ingenuity and elaborate uh, distractions and self-delusions and little trips. Without God-centeredness, the mind is just the mind, and those who are in hell have lost the good of the intellect. And so there's sighs and weeping and all that. Um, and here we come to the... We begin... At this point, you can begin to appreciate Dante's great genius. Who are these first people we meet? He asks Virgil this. Virgil says, the, the sorry souls of those who lived without disgrace and without praise. They now commingle with the coward angels, the company of those who were not rebels nor faithful to their God, but stood apart, stood apart, per se, per se. These are not um, sinners in a technical sense. Th these are both human souls and angelic beings. And they are, the human souls are not sinners, and the angelic beings are not the rebel horde that followed Lucifer, you see. 
they are those who made no decision. They are those who had no passionate commitment one way or another. And not even hell will have them. We get to see them on this side of, of the river Acheron where the hell's on the other side. Not even hell will have them. They lived per se. They tried to just make do. Now, in Dante's time, sin required that one had an aversion to God and that one acted on that aversion. And Dante has noticed, no doubt, that there are some people who have, who have, uh, have summoned the, the, the moral muscle to avoid the act without doing the least thing about transforming the aversion. And uh, Dante puts them in this little vestibule of hell. To avoid the act, uh, without transforming the impulse. William Blake said, "Those, those who uh, constrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be constrained." <laughs> uh, simply not to perform the technical sin merits a place in this little vestibule of hell. If the, if the transformation has... Now, uh, in our time, this is... I guess it's always been rampant. Uh, in our time, this has been explored by T.S. Eliot probably as well as anybody else, although Yeats has some... Yeats says the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity, so he explores it too, but Eliot seemed to explore it in, you know, so many of his poems, beginning early on with Prufrock. Prufrock is a personification of this little vestibule of hell. So let me read you the Prufrock to get a sense of this situation. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands to lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time for yet a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. It's two of the most supreme lines in 20th century English poetry. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. God, the impotence of that, the, the desperation that uh, is, is, is in those two lines is unbelievable. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare, and do I dare, time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, 
have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. That's it. He didn't have to. Prufrock didn't have to got, die to go there. He was there, in this little vestibule of hell. Those Martin Buber says, that if if there is a devil, it's not one who decides against God, but one who, in the final analysis, makes no decision. No passionate commitment. Not enough passion. Uh, Baudelaire, the French poet Baudelaire, said this thing about the devil's trick in our time is to uh, uh, is to convince us he doesn't exist, and then he's got us. Uh, well, a version of that w might be that, uh, as I've said before, a version of that might be that the the devil's trick is to is to uh, get us to appreciate the genuine truth of the fact that all roads lead to heaven. But having arrived at this transcendent realization, we then throw ourselves a big party and don't take any one of them. See? Good for us. So there we are. And so, let, let, so let's explore what, it, what the situation really is. Strange things are said. Virgil says, those who are here can place no hope in death, and their blind life is so abject that they are envious of every other fate. They can place no hope in death. What could this mean? Often, without being aware of it, We have this feeling, independent of how we might feel about the idea of a, of a life beyond death, often we have this feeling that uh, at the moment of death, uh, the truth will be revealed so that no matter what happens, between now and then, when that happens, you get your ticket punched and it's all there, see? In other words, death will do it for me. Really? What if it isn't so? What if it isn't so? If it isn't so, this is a hell of a lot more exciting universe to live in. And scary, and deep. And so, what are they punished by? Well, they're punished. The punishment is always a, some version of the sin. Augustine, you know, said sin is the punishment of sin, and uh, Dante takes that literally for his poem. They're punished by chasing around this. Th there's a banner that's being held aloft, you know, and and uh, and trooped around this great field, and all these souls are chasing this banner wildly around. These are people who never committed themselves passionately to anything, and now they're chasing this little piece of bunting flapping in the wind. I, like I say, you don't have to die to see some of this happen. 
no fundamental, deep, passionate commitment. And what you get instead is this little substitute for it. Uh, Jung said uh, an uncommitted, uh, a person who's fundamentally uncommitted is, becomes the shuttlecock in every wind that blow. What are you into now? <laughs> God. <laughs> And so they are chasing around. And Dante says, I, I should never have believed that death could have unmade so many souls. This is an enormous crowd. See, we think this is just a... This is an enormous crowd, undifferentiated mass who haven't committed deeply and passionately one way or the other. Eliot uses this, quotes the same line in his Wasteland. Unreal city, under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many, I had not thought death had undone so many. That's a direct quote from Dante. So many. That's a comment not on, not on that's a comment on our society. And then, of course, the, in a way, the clunker down on line 63 and 64, hateful to God and to his enemies, these wretched ones who never were alive, who never came alive, who never came alive. The attempt to civilize ourselves by eliminating passion produces domestication, but not civilization. We become domesticated, house-trained, but not civilized. By eliminating passion. Yeats has a passage where he says, Oh, what if leveled lawns and graveled ways where slippered contemplation finds his ease and childhood a delight in every sense but take our greatness with our violence? What if all we're doing is domesticating ourselves? And he's chasing this banner around as a, in Eliot's murdered cathedral. Uh, Thomas Beckett says, uh, It is not better to be thrown to a thousand hungry appetites than to one. As though that's the choice, finally. The, then, then we focus now on the souls that are getting ready to cross the river into hell itself. And guess what? They are eager for the crossing. Very odd. They are eager for the crossing. And then as they stand there waiting to be uh, led across, they can be heard uh, condemning everybody. Line 103 and following. They execrated God and their own parents and, and humankind and then the place and time of their conception seed and of their birth. They're sitting there 
blaming everybody, blaming God, blaming their parents, blaming the age in which they lived. Sound familiar? And that's a symptom of what leads to hell. It is that it's, it's, the, it's the inability to experience that repentance that might lead to something. 